You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Next to me on my right was a boy of 17, Henry Parker. I remember it because while we stood at ease, he drew my attention to some violets at his feet and said, It would be a good idea to put a few into my cap. Perhaps the Yanks won't shoot me if they see me wearing such flowers, for they are a sign of peace. Capital, said I. I will do the same. We plucked a bunch and arranged the violets in our caps. The men in the ranks laughed at our proceedings, and had not the enemy been so near, their merry mood might have been communicated to the army. We loaded our muskets and arranged our cartridge pouches ready for use. Our weapons were the obsolete flintlocks, and the ammunition was rolled in cartridge paper, which contained powder, a round ball, and three buckshot. When we loaded, we had to tear the paper with our teeth, empty a little powder into the pan, lock it, empty the rest of the powder into the barrel, press paper and ball into the muzzle, and ram home. Then the orderly sergeant called the roll, and we knew that the Dixie Grays were present to a man. Soon after, there was a commotion, and we dressed up smartly. A young aide galloped along our front, gave some instructions to the brigadier Heinemann, who confided the same to his colonels, and presently we swayed forward in line with shouldered arms. Newton's story, big, broad, and straight, bore our company banner of gay silk, at which the ladies of our neighborhood had labored. As we tramped solemnly and silently through the thin forest and over its grass, still in its withered and wintry hue, I noticed that the sun was not far from appearing, that our regiment was keeping its formation admirably, that the woods would have been a grand place for a picnic, and I thought it strange that a Sunday should have been chosen to disturb the holy calm of those woods. Before we had gone five hundred paces, our serenity was disturbed by some firing in front. It was then a quarter past five. They are at it already, we whispered to each other. Stand by, gentlemen, said our Captain L.G. Smith. Our steps became unconsciously brisker, and alertness was noticeable in everybody. The firing continued at intervals, deliberate and scattered, as at target practice. We drew nearer to the firing, and soon a sharper rattling of musketry was heard. This is the enemy waking up, we said. Within a few minutes, there was another explosive burst of musketry. The air was pierced by many missiles, which hummed and pinged sharply by our ears, pattered through the treetops, and brought twigs and leaves down on us. Those are bullets, Henry whispered with awe. Private Henry M. Stanley, 6th Arkansas Infantry, Heinemann's Brigade. We had turned out about sunup, answered to roll call, and had cooked and eaten our breakfast. We had then gone to work, preparing for the regular Sunday morning inspection, which would take place at nine o'clock. The boys were scattered around the company streets and in front of the company parade grounds, engaged in polishing and brightening their muskets, and brushing up and cleaning their shoes, 
jackets, trousers, and clothing generally. It was a most beautiful morning. The sun was shining brightly through the trees, and there was not a cloud in the sky. It really seemed like Sunday in the country at home. I listened with delight to the plaintive, mournful tones of a turtle dove in the woods close by, while on the dead limb of a tall tree right in the camp, a woodpecker was sounding his long roll, just as I had heard it beaten by his northern brothers a thousand times on the trees in the Otter Creek bottoms at home. Suddenly, away off on the right, in the direction of Shiloh Church, came a dull, heavy pum, then another, and still another. Every man sprung to his feet as if struck by an electric shock, and we looked inquiringly into one another's faces. What is that? asked everyone, but no one answered. Those heavy booms then came thicker and faster, and just a few seconds after we heard that first dull, ominous growl off to the southwest, came a low, sullen, continuous roar. There was no mistaking that sound. That was not a squad of pickets emptying their guns on being relieved from duty. It was the continuous roll of thousands of muskets and told us that a battle was on. What I have been describing just now occurred during a few seconds only, and with the roar of musketry, the long roll began to beat in our camp. Then ensued a scene of desperate haste, the like of which I certainly had never seen before, nor ever saw again. I remember that in the midst of this terrible uproar and confusion, while the boys were buckling on their cartridge boxes, and before even the companies had been formed, a mounted staff officer came galloping wildly down the line from the right. He checked and whirled his horse sharply around, right in our company street, the iron-bound hoofs of his steed crashing among the tin plates, lying in a little pile where my mess had eaten its breakfast that morning. The horse was flecked with foam, and its eyes and nostrils were red as blood. The officer cast one hurried glance around him and exclaimed, "'My God, this regiment not in line yet? They have been fighting on the right over an hour.' and wheeling his horse, he disappeared in the direction of the colonel's tent. Corporal Leander Stilwell, 61st Illinois Infantry, Miller's Brigade Welcome to episode 114 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. At the end of the last show, it was a bit after 5 o'clock on the morning of Sunday, April 6, 1862, and the Battle of Shiloh had just started when a Union patrol composed of men from the 25th Missouri and the 12th Michigan made contact with the Confederate outpost line. The Federal Patrol had been sent out by Colonel Everett Peabody, who was certain that an attack on Pittsburgh Landing was imminent, despite his superior's belief that recent rebel activity in the area was nothing to worry about. The 400 or so men of the Federal Patrol, led by Major James Powell, had stumbled their way through the inky darkness and then reached a 40-acre clearing known as Fraley Field. There they ran into a 280-man battalion of Mississippians, led by Major Aaron B. Hardcastle. The Mississippians manned outposts and formed the skirmish line 
in front of Wood's brigade, which was part of Hardy's corps. As the two sides exchanged a growing volume of fire, and in the darkness before the dawn gave way to the first light of sunrise, the Battle of Shiloh was underway. Both Powell and Hardcastle were experienced officers, both having served in the pre-war army, and after first contact there at Fraley Field, the two lines stood fast and traded volley after volley. From each side, a steady trickle of wounded men began to make their way to the rear, either hobbling along under their own power or helped by comrades. At a campfire about three-quarters of a mile away from that scene, Albert Sidney Johnston had been listening to P.G.T. Beauregard once again make his argument for calling off the attack and withdrawing back to Corinth. But about 5.30, the sound of increasing gunfire from Fraley Field had led Sidney Johnston to finally speak up and put an end to the one-sided discussion. The sharp volleys of musketry from Hardy's front signaled the start of the battle, and Sidney Johnston knew that any further talk of retreating without a fight was now wasted breath, so he told the gathering of officers, Gentlemen, the battle is opened. It is too late now for us to change our dispositions. He gave the order for the attack to commence, and then mounted his horse, Fire Eater. As his staff also mounted up, Johnston told them, Tonight, we will water our horses in the Tennessee River. As the battle began, Sidney Johnston headed toward the sound of fighting and instructed Beauregard to remain in the rear and funnel troops toward the front. Why Johnston chose to lead from the front lines at Shiloh has been a matter of speculation ever since. For an army commander during the Civil War, directing combat operations within range of enemy fire definitely entailed serious risk to the general, and also the risk that the army would suffer a sudden loss of leadership if the commanding general were wounded or killed. In addition to those risks, another disadvantage of forward command was the probability that an army commander who positioned himself with one part of his army during the smoke and chaos of battle, would necessarily lose contact with and control over the other parts of his army. By fixing his attention on one piece of the battle, the general would have difficulty keeping the larger picture in focus. By positioning himself close behind the firing line and allowing the fighting directly in front of him to absorb his attention, the army commander ran the risk of turning into little more than just another corps or brigade commander and leaving the rest of his army virtually leaderless. Albert Sidney Johnston can perhaps be forgiven for running this risk, since he had Beauregard in the rear to keep an eye on the larger picture. But why would Johnston choose to accept the disadvantages and risk of forward command in the first place? Perhaps Sidney Johnston felt that by directing the action from the front line, he could somehow correct the faulty attack orders drawn up by Beauregard's chief of staff, Jordan. Perhaps Johnston thought that by leading from the front, he could somehow personally see to it that the army would still fulfill his original plan for the battle and turn the federal left. But more likely is that Albert Sidney Johnston had felt the sting of the criticism leveled at him in the past months after the unbroken string of defeats the Confederacy had suffered in the West. And since his subordinates had failed him so many times recently, he supposed that now, at the crucial moment, he had to lead from the front, on the spot, very close to the firing lines, in order to get anything done right. 
and at Shiloh, if further proof were needed that venturing forward was the only way for Sidney Johnston to ensure that his wishes were translated into action, well, his inexperienced army proved awfully slow in carrying out his order to advance that morning. An hour passed between Johnston issuing his order and the actual advance of Hardy's first line, and during that hour the small battle between Powell and Hardcastle continued to rage in Fraley Field. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the inexperience of Confederate officers throughout the Rebel Army, and especially the lack of trained and experienced staff officers, it took time for Sidney Johnston's attack order to filter down the chain of command. It did not help matters that Jordan's original order had failed to specify a start time, instead merely urging an assault, quote, at the earliest time practicable, end quote. Meanwhile, at Fraley Field, as the sun rose and the light gradually increased, Major Powell came to realize that there were more Confederate troops in the vicinity than just those he was fighting. Seeing a force of rebel cavalry working its way through the woods beyond one of his flanks convinced Powell that it was time to fall back, but the men of his patrol had only withdrawn a short distance when they encountered reinforcements coming out from camp to join them. Back at camp, Peabody had heard the volleys of musketry at Fraley Field, and he'd summoned a drummer from the 25th Missouri. He ordered the boy to start to sound the long roll, the Army's urgent call to arms. Peabody's division commander, Benjamin Prentice, had also heard what sounded to him like a fairly serious skirmish taking place off to the southwest. Prentice rode over to Peabody's camp, and when he discovered that his brigade commander had sent out an unauthorized patrol and the firing in the distance was the result, Prentice was furious. He scolded Peabody, saying, quote, Colonel Peabody, I will hold you personally responsible for bringing on this engagement, end quote. Peabody glared at Prentice and replied that he was always personally responsible for all of his actions. 
Prentice rode off, but his reaction to the news that Peabody's patrol was engaged with the enemy somewhere not far off was proof that Sherman and Grant had apparently done a good job of impressing on their subordinates that Henry Halleck wanted the Union Army at Pittsburgh Landing to avoid anything remotely resembling aggressive action. Prentice apparently never forgave Peabody, since in an act of remarkable spitefulness, in his official report of the battle, Prentice only mentions Everett Peabody once, and then merely to list him as one of his brigade commanders. At any rate, having absorbed the tongue-lashing from Prentice, Peabody moved to send reinforcements to Powell. He could tell by the volume of fire that his subordinate was in a serious fight and would likely need help. Peabody dispatched five companies of the 21st Missouri under that regiment's colonel, David Moore. On their way toward the sound of the firing, Moore's force was joined by a company from the 16th Wisconsin, which had been out on picket duty that night. These men, led by Moore, were the reinforcements that Powell met as he fell back from his fight with the rebels in Fraley Field. After meeting up with Powell, Moore took command of the combined force. And despite Powell's warning that the enemy was advancing in force, Moore berated him for retreating and ordered Powell's original patrol to join his men as they advanced. Moore, however, did send a messenger back to camp with word that the other five companies of his regiment were to hurry forward and join the fight. Moore's command, now 16 companies in all, advanced, only to run into the Confederates, not in Fraley Field, but closer to the Union camps this time, on the near side of the Corinth Road. This meant that the rebel line had finally begun to move forward. The advancing Confederates opened fire on Moore's outnumbered Federals, but the Yankees held their ground as best they could. They traded volleys with the rebels for perhaps half an hour, and then Moore ordered his men to fix bayonets and prepare for a charge. Before that could happen, though, Moore went down with a bullet in the leg. With that, Powell resumed command of his original patrol and marched the men back to camp, apparently having seen enough to realize that the Union force then engaged had no hope of holding back the approaching Confederate tidal wave. By that time, the remaining five companies of the 21st Missouri had arrived on the scene, led by Lieutenant Colonel Marshall Woodyard. They were soon joined by four companies of the 16th Wisconsin, which represented the rest of the brigade's picket line that had been on duty that night. In his book Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen E. Woodworth explains that, quote, It was now about 6.30, half an hour after sunrise, and Johnston's large and awkward army had finally lurched into motion. Even then, it was not a smooth and steady advance. As the brigades began to move forward in their extended lines of battle, all four regiments of each brigade strung out one beside the other in the standard two-rank, single-line battle formations prescribed in their tactics manual, they found it difficult to maintain their alignment, especially when they encountered woods, thickets, or ravines with which the battlefield was covered. Gaps opened in the lines and had to be corrected. Regiments veered off course or broke apart and had to halt to correct their alignment. End quote. And so, while Hardee's first-line corps consisted of 22 regiments and two battalions of infantry divided into four brigades, in all over 9,000 men, their orderly advance was greatly hindered by the rough terrain. 
In fact, throughout the day, the advancing Confederates would find that communications and tactical coordination, never good even under ideal conditions, were often all but impossible at Shiloh due to the broken nature of the terrain that covered much of the battlefield. The rebel advance might be jerky and halting, but it was relentless that Sunday morning, and after perhaps an hour of furious combat, Woodyard's vastly outnumbered Federals had to fall back toward the Union camps. Woodyard had stood his ground as long as possible, but his one-and-a-half regiment-sized force was under attack by the Confederate brigades of both Brigadier General S.A.M. Wood and Colonel R.G. Shaver. As the Southern advance finally got going in earnest, the volume of musketry swelled to a new crescendo, and Everett Peabody marched the remainder of the 25th Missouri and 12th Michigan forward to join Woodyard's fight. Peabody met Woodyard's hard-pressed men falling back slowly through the woods about a half-mile out from the brigade's camps, and he deployed them in his own force in a 400-yard-long line of battle facing south along a low ridge. It was now about 7.30, and Peabody's men didn't have to wait long before the Confederate assault struck them in full force. The Union soldiers poured fire into the advancing Confederate ranks, and the rebel attack was stopped with heavy casualties, but the Southerners rallied and came on again. By that time, the advance of Hardy's Corps was threatening to turn both of Peabody's flanks, which were, as they say, up in the air, meaning the ends of his defensive line weren't anchored on any natural features or connected with any neighboring friendly units. As the relentlessly advancing rebels lapped around his flanks, Peabody's brigade began to waver. Peabody, already suffering from four wounds, rode this way and that, trying to inspire his troops and get them to hold their positions just a bit longer. But then he was shot in the head, and he toppled from his horse, dead. With Peabody's death, his men retreated, and what started out as a relatively orderly and controlled withdrawal picked up speed as the men approached their regimental camps. There, the rows of tents became obstacles, and their lines broke apart, and all unit cohesion vanished. With that, most of the survivors of Peabody's brigade ran for the rear as fast as their legs would carry them. It was now about 8.30. By 8.30, Benjamin Prentice's other brigade had also made its fight. It was led by Colonel Madison Miller, a Mexican War veteran and former mayor of Carondelet, Missouri. Like Peabody, Miller had four regiments, but the 4th, the 15th Michigan, had just arrived that morning and had no ammunition. It would be little help stemming the Confederate attack, so someone, probably Prentice or Miller, sent it back to Pittsburgh Landing to try to get some cartridges. Alerted partly by the sound of Peabody's final struggle in front of his camps beginning at 7.30, and partly by the arrival of Prentice shouting, Colonel Miller, get out your brigade, they are fighting on the right. Miller's other three regiments, the 18th Missouri, 61st Illinois, and 18th Wisconsin, took position on the north edge of a field owned by a local farmer named Peter Spain. Two batteries of artillery supported them, Captain Emil Munch's 1st Minnesota Battery, and Captain Andrew Hickenlooper's 5th Ohio Battery. The rebels emerged from the woods at the southern end of Spain Field at about 8 a.m. 
They were four Alabama regiments and one from Louisiana, along with two Alabama artillery batteries, all comprising the brigade of Adley H. Gladden, a 51-year-old veteran of the Mexican War and New Orleans businessman. Gladden's brigade was actually part of Bragg's Corps, originally earmarked for the second wave of the Confederate Army's attack, but since Hardee's Corps wasn't large enough to stretch from one end of the battlefield to the other, on Saturday evening, Beauregard had ordered Gladden to move up on Hardee's right to extend the first line over to Lick Creek. As they began their advance northward on Sunday morning, Gladden's regiments, like their comrades elsewhere on the battlefield, had struggled to maintain their formations while crossing difficult terrain. Patches of swampy ground proved especially troublesome to negotiate, and the confusion generated when they hit one such spot led the 26 Alabama to get jostled out of line, and it had to shift over to the other end of the brigade's line. As the rebels came into view of the Federals in Spain field, Munch's and Hickenlooper's guns opened fire. One of the first shells struck Gladden in the arm and shoulder, inflicting a gruesome wound, which proved fatal. Some of Gladden's men carried him to the rear, and Colonel Daniel Adams of the 1st Louisiana took his place. Adams led the brigade forward, boldly waving his regiment's flag, but despite his valor and that of his men, sheets of fire from Miller's brigade and from the Federal cannon drove them back, leaving Spain field strewn with fallen Confederates. But Adams, Alabamians, and Louisianans rallied and came on again, this time with help from Brigadier General James R. Chalmers, whose second wave brigade of four Mississippi and one Tennessee regiments had by that time worked their way forward through the woods to the east of Spain Field and made their presence felt. As ten attacking rebel regiments pressed in on the three defending Union regiments, Miller's line began to give way and then collapsed. The Yankees ran for their lives back through their camps and into the woods beyond. The fight in front of Miller's camps had lasted perhaps half an hour. It was not yet 9 a.m., and on the Federal left, Prentiss's division was routed, its surviving soldiers fleeing northward through the woods in the general direction of the landing. In his book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen Woodworth explains what happened next. Quote, The Confederates more or less spontaneously broke off their pursuit just beyond Prentice's captured camps and paused to catch their breath and take stock of what they had just accomplished. For most of the soldiers, the battle seemed to be won, and they turned their attention to ransacking the captured camps in search of loot. Food was the chief item of interest to the chronically underfed Confederates, most of whom had gone a day or two since finishing up the last of the rations they had brought with them from Corinth. Other items also attracted attention, articles of clothing, personal possessions, even love letters, as here and there a Confederate sat down to read some such missive on the spot in hopes of finding out what Yankee girls were like. The plundering of Peabody's and Miller's camps created massive straggling among the four Confederate brigades that had overrun them. This, along with the casualties they had taken in the fight with Prentice's division, and the disorganization naturally stemming from such a fight, as well as an advance through the woods and the obstacles presented by the camps, rendered them temporarily unfit for further combat, 
and gave Prentice's fugitives time to make their escape, and if they had the fortitude, form up for further fighting. Albert Sidney Johnston had watched as his troops swept forward across Spain Field and then onward through Miller's camps. Y'all will recall that Johnston's plan all along had been to crush the Federal left, prying it away from the river, and then with a position of leverage on Grant's flank, push the Union Army away from the Tennessee into a cul-de-sac formed by Snake Creek and Owl Creek and their swampy bottomlands. Some historians think that after the defeat of Prentice's division, Sidney Johnston, because of imperfect Confederate maps and imperfect intelligence on the location of the Yankee camps, Johnston apparently believed that he had broken the Federal left and cut Grant off from Pittsburgh Landing. As the firing around Prentice's camps died away, Sidney Johnston would have heard the sound of battle coming from a source roughly west and perhaps a little north of his position, and he would have concluded that he was between the river and the remainder of Grant's army, which apparently still offering stout resistance to the left half of the Confederate line. Sidney Johnston, apparently believing that he had cut the bulk of Grant's army off from Pittsburgh Landing, thought all that was needed now was to smash the Union diehards to the west, drive them north into the cul-de-sac formed by the creeks, and there finish them off. With that in mind, Johnston ordered several brigades shifted to the left toward the sound of the still heavy firing. Indeed, earlier, even while the fight in front of Prentice's camps was still going on, Sidney Johnston had sent instructions to Beauregard to send all three brigades of Breckinridge's Reserve Corps marching over to the Confederate left to take part in what the Army commander seemed to believe would be the final phase of the battle. But Sidney Johnston had made a critical mistake. Yes, he had defeated Prentiss's division and driven it off in disorder, but he hadn't successfully passed the Federal left and cut off the bulk of Grant's army from Pittsburgh Landing. In fact, there were more Federals to the Confederate right, in the form of David Stewart's brigade, detached from Sherman's division, and there were also additional Federal formations deploying farther north of the spot where Johnston stood. So yes, the rebels had routed Prentiss, but they hadn't driven far enough north to actually cut off the bulk of Grant's army from the landing. This was Sidney Johnston's massive miscalculation. He was not in the rear of the Union Army after crushing Grant's left, as he seemed to suppose, but rather had merely pushed the enemy left back and was still in front of it. Albert Sidney Johnston soon began to realize his mistake, but we'll save that story for next time, when we continue with the rest of the morning's action on the Federal left, and then we'll switch our focus to the early fighting over on the Union right. One issue we wanted to address, though, before we wrap up this episode, is the question of surprise at Shiloh. After the battle, northern newspapers ran stories leading readers to believe the Confederates had sneaked up on the Federal camps and sprang upon the surprised Union soldiers, even suddenly bayonetting the men as they slept in their tents. Well, that would have been a remarkable surprise, but even though the newspapers reported it had happened, it didn't actually happen that way. As we've already seen, many of the Federals in the frontline camps knew the rebels were in their front, and more importantly, the patrol that Everett Peabody sent out uncovered the Confederates while still a mile from the Union camps. 
Tramping through the difficult terrain and hampered by the Federals making stands and delaying the advance, it actually took precious hours for the Confederates to reach those Yankee camps they were supposed to assault at daylight. So just to set the record straight, no Union soldier was surprised in his tent and bayoneted while he still lay in bed. But having said that, the Confederate attack was a surprise on the strategic or operational level. Despite Grant and Sherman denying to their graves that they were surprised at Shiloh, it's obvious that neither of them had the least expectation that the rebels would march north from Corinth and attack the Federal encampment at Pittsburgh Landing. When speaking of Shiloh as a surprise attack and dealing with this larger context, One Confederate officer who fought at Shiloh, Basil Duke, later wrote that if the circumstances, quote, do not constitute a surprise, then there is no use for such a word in the language, end quote. And a soldier in blue on the receiving end of the attack would have agreed with Duke's assessment. That soldier in the 57th Ohio in Sherman's division described how, quote, We were unprepared to meet them, we were not expecting them, and they came on us with about 40,000 men, and we had not a line formed yet, and they poured in on us like blackbirds into a cornfield. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Shiloh, 1862, The Death of Innocence by James R. Arnold. This is a book in Osprey Publishing's campaign series, and like most of the offerings in that series, it's a solid introduction to whatever topic is being covered, in this instance, the Battle of Shiloh. And like all Osprey books, it has some 3D bird's eye maps, which you may or may not find helpful, but the other regular maps are pretty good, and like the 3D maps, you won't get a headache trying to figure them out. Uh, anyway, that's Shiloh, 1862, The Death of Innocence, by James R. Arnold. And you can find it with all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then on the show's Facebook page, Rich and I are excited at how close we are getting to a 1,000 likes from y'all. As we've mentioned before, neither of us had ever been on Facebook before we started a page for the podcast. So we're ridiculously excited at the prospect of reaching the 1,000 mark. And it's all thanks to y'all. So thank you. Yep. And then we also have some new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank for their support. Since last time, we have Scott, Jeremy, Richard, Brian, Peter, and Ken to thank. And then if you listen to the podcast through iTunes, please consider leaving us a review there. That helps other people discover the podcast on iTunes. And with that, we'll say thank you to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.